So, well, no, good morning. Is it that cold, really? <laughs> Try it again. Good morning. Hey, good, good, because I have to tell you, this morning I got up, I was a little bitter, 40 degrees, a little bitter, and then I realized I used to live in Minnesota where it's seven, so perspective's a powerful thing, <laughs> so uh, my whole life changed when I realized I'm glad it's not seven, <laughs> so um, welcome, if you're new, my name's Kevin, I'm your lead pastor, and this morning we are going to finish the book of James. Yeah, isn't that a great thing? So for 10 weeks... James, not me, by the way, James punched you in the teeth, right? Week after week, it felt like you're just getting punched in the teeth. But the good news is the 11th message in the book of James, seriously, is like he just gives you a big hug. So, so you are not going to, I don't think, are going to get punched in the teeth this morning. Because what we've been going through for the last 10 weeks as we wrap this up is he's really trying to help us look at what it really means to have a faith that is authenticated by deeds. And that's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing. And that's really impractical to have a faith that isn't just something you say is faith, but a faith that actually looks like a real and a real vibrant and passionate faith. I just um, love what Ezra says in Ezra chapter 7. And I think this seems to be happening all around our church, and I'm super proud of this church family for this. Ezra 7 says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He had set his heart on studying God's word. And then he set his heart on practicing God's word. And then he set his heart on teaching God's word. That's a disciple maker. And what I love about y'all is just people all over this church who are said, Kevin, I am tired of coming to this church and you taking a spoon and jamming it in a jar and sticking it in my mouth. Enough is enough. And so there are people at this church, a whole crew have said, no, I am going to study God's word. The whole large swath now is studying God's word together. And then there's a whole other group that's moved from just studying God's word to how do I apply that to, to my life? How do I live that out of my life? How do I practice my faith? And then there's another large swath of people who've said, you know what? I'm going to pour into other people so they know it, so they apply it. And so that uh, I, they can be prepared. I can be a part of preparing others to one day lead. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And now with that being said, we have one final installment in the book of James. One last one. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, turn with me to James chapter 5. We're going to camp. We're going to finish up the book right here, James chapter 5. And I have to tell you, if you haven't been convicted at all, as we've walked through the book of James, you don't have a pulse. Okay, we're going to call our, our, our safety and health and security team in. They're going to check you because I don't know how that's possible. Because whether it is how we handle our wealth and resources, which we talked about last week, whether it's how you deal with your tongue, and the trouble we get into with our words, whether we're dealing with pride and humility, whether we're looking at partiality within the body, 
Maybe we're looking at how do you engage with and how do you handle uh, biblically the trials and the difficulties and the storms of life. It was really hard to not be convicted every week. And the question we, we ended with was, what do you do with that? If every week I get punched in the face, what do you do with that? Like, how am I supposed to, to process that? And in many ways, that's what these final few verses, what they sort of are. And to be clear, though, as we start, there are some things you can't do in a hurry. There are some things you can't do in a hurry. My dad would say that to me all the time. Kevin, slow down. Slow down. Some of you say that about my preaching. Kevin, slow down. So things you can't do in a hurry. You can't love your spouse in a hurry. You can try. It's not going to work. Some of you can't listen with understanding in a hurry. You can't. You can't listen with understanding and a heart in a hurry. And you can't have deep spiritual roots in a hurry. You can't grow spiritual roots quickly. In all of these areas that James has been speaking to, the transformation takes time. In our faith, there's a sense that, yes, we need to grow up. He comes at us and is like, kind of grow up, guys. Yes, we hear that. But what we do is we tend to want to grow up quickly, much like some of us who have daughters that are four going on like 24. Anybody have those? Yeah. And, and they want to be right now. And he's going, it doesn't work that way. Because in many ways, the spiritual growth that we go through is very slow. And the growth we go through is very painful at times. And that's what James is beginning to say. Look at verse 7. This is what it says. Be patient. That was good until that second word, right? <laughs> be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. He's like, be patient. Storms are either coming to your life or are currently in your life. Be patient. You're wrestling with sin. You didn't get into it overnight, probably. You're, you might not get out of it overnight. Be patient. Hang in there. He's going, listen, hard times, yes, they're going to come. Hang in there. You're going to have to wait for the process to take its due course in your life. You want to grow spiritually, he says, I get it. I know you want to grow spiritually, church, is what he's speaking to us. But he's like, but like the farmer, do what you can, and then entrust the process to God, who will complete in you this good work that he has begun. He has begun something in you. And he's like, hang in there. It's going to take some time, but it's great. It's going to be great. And if you want a faith that lasts, and if you want a faith that is, shows evidence in how you live, you can't fast forward that process. And so he says the word that at least people like me hate. Wait. Hang in there. Be patient. And that's why he says in verse 8, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So be patient. It's reminiscent of what James said back in James chapter 1. Probably the most annoying section of scripture that I've read recently. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
He says, because you know that the testing of your faith that produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That takes time. James is saying the difficulty that you're going through, this process of you growing in your spiritual life, the pain, the awkwardness, the not fitting in, feeling like you're doing it wrong, sort of like you're limping through it, this feelings of all sorts of things, that's all part of the process. He's like, just hang in there. He's got you. He is finishing something in you. And did you notice it says the coming of the Lord is at hand? What so many Christians today we, we are looking for something instead of someone. If we would be as passionate at looking for him as we are looking for the signs, whether this conflict with Israel and, and the Gaza Strip, and we're looking at this issue, and we're looking at this, and we're looking at this, maybe if we stop looking at something and we start looking to someone, something might change. Because he's like, that's what he's talking about here. He's like, I want to be established in your heart before I get there. He's saying, there's a process you're going through, so hang in there. And just so you know, many times it's painful because the greatest times of growth will typically be during your greatest times of pain. Your greatest times of growth will typically be in your greatest times of pain. It's probably going to sting it's going to be painful. It's going to be messy. And there's a good chance what you're going through, the process you're going through, is not the way you want to go through it. And so in verse 9, in the meantime, James says, don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Don't complain and criticize and moan, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. It's Really easy to become Eeyore when it's raining in our life, isn't it? Oh, my life's bad. Oh, man, God hates me. I don't even know which way it's up. Probably doing it all wrong. Going to get it wrong tomorrow just like I got it wrong today. Woe is me. You know, God doesn't love me. And it's, I, I say that lightly for a second, but when, you, when it's raining, that's the way you feel. That is the way you feel. And so many times... What you don't see is what God is doing in you. It's hard to see what he's doing in your life through the rain. I remember growing very quickly in the 8th and ninth grade. And one thing that every younger sibling wants, especially if they have older brothers, especially if they have much, 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 much older brothers. My brothers are much older than me. Uh, every, I'll, I'll use the dudes at least, every young brother wants to be taller than their brothers. I'm no different. Eighth and ninth grade, I grew very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that my tendons and my ligaments and my bones were growing so fast, I felt like my, I was growing, I needed a new pair of pants every Friday. I felt like we were going shopping for new pairs of pants all the time. And it was so painful. And it was so hurtful. And in fact, when the pain got so great, my mom would massage my legs because it hurt so bad. And I remember being really mad about that. But what I didn't realize was the pain I was feeling was the growth that some years later I was going to be 
really thankful for. Because the younger brother got to look down and dominate his older brothers. I was very thankful that. I wanted to be tall. I just didn't want to go through the pain of starting as a little guy and growing into a tall guy. And I can't help but recognize the comparison spiritually. Many of you are feeling spiritual growing pains through the book of James. There's a sense where you're growing and it's painful and you're reading the word of God and you're like, that can't be right. And you're reading the word of God and you're like, I don't want to submit that area of my life to him. And you read God's word and you're like, no, I don't want to deal with that sin in my life. Or some of you for the first time are going, I know what it says, I just don't want to do it. And we're wrestling, and we're wrestling, because we, we're wrestling with obedience and disobedience, and the Word of God is just sort of jumping out off the page at us like a 3D book, and you're going, I think I should do something about this area of my life, even though I don't want to do something. And it's a painful process, and God is saying, just endure, just hang in there. I am with you. I am doing something beautiful in you, and I'm doing something that's needed in you. You might not see it, I do. Just let it happen and don't complain about it because the very thing you're going to complain about is the very thing you're going to be thankful for sometime in the future. Church, never forget, God will always, God's will is always easier to understand in the rearview mirror. God's will is always easier to remember in the rearview mirror. And in the moment, it doesn't make sense. But there will be a time of gratitude in your future. Even though right now you're like, gratitude? Are you kidding me? I'm not sure it could get any worse. Hang in there. There will be a time in your future when you will understand, where you will be grateful, and there will be a lesson that you've learned. Don't grumble to one another because you wish you hadn't done that when God reveals what he's doing in your life and you're like, oh, Right, right. And all those people that you grumbled and you complained to, you can't undo what you did to their faith. We never go back and go, oh, you know what? My bad. The damage has already been done to their faith. And what's interesting now is that he gives an example of two very interesting people. First group of the people, prophets. I don't know if you've ever read through the prophets in your Bible. If you ever see a posting on Indeed.com for the job of prophet, don't take it. Okay? Don't take it. I don't care what the pay is. I don't care what the hours are. I don't care if it's like, hey, work from home. It doesn't matter. Don't take it. Like, probably worst job ever. These guys' whole job was to walk into the throne rooms of pagan kings and say, you're disobedient to God. And their whole job was to walk into the throne rooms of kings who thought they were like spiritual people and say, you're disobedient to God. And these people are stripped naked. They're beaten. They're thrown into wells. They're picked up, thrown into prison. Keys are thrown away. That's the job of a prophet. Yay! Go prophet. That's what it sort of looks like here. And James says, by the way, James knows that these people are Jewish Christians. They know who the prophets are. And he says in verse 10, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James says their example of suffering is very profound, yet they spoke the name of the Lord boldly. They didn't allow their circumstances to dictate their attitude. 
when it is raining in your life, when the storms have rolled in, when you don't think there's a way out of your sin, too many times we allow our circumstances to dictate my attitude. He's like, that shouldn't be. And the other example he gives, which I find fascinating, is Job. Verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And I don't know if you remember this guy, Job, but it says about him, it says, um, he remained steadfast and demonstrated the promises and faithfulness of the Lord. I thought, why did he do that? You know why he did that? Because he water skied like my brother-in-law. That's why he gets that. So my wife's dad had a boat on a lake. That boat was built when Noah built the ark, okay? <laughs> and it had an engine about that big on it. And their family, for whatever reason, thought it was a great idea to water ski behind this boat. And, and no, no offense to them, they're all, they all were college football players, but they're linemen. They're built like anchors, okay? They're not built like water skiers. And so Doug would get behind this boat. We're all in this little John boat. Not a, we all shouldn't have been in that boat. And he's like, hit it. And we're like, eh. you know, back at him. <laughs> and you hit that thing, and we're just dragging him behind the boat. I mean, he's just holding on. Water, he's choking, spitting things out. We're basically waterboarding him is what it feels like. And about the time, we're like, should we keep going? And of course, the other brothers are like, keep going, he's fine. You know, because that's what brothers do. I'm like, I don't think this is healthy. And about the time we're going to cut it off, up pops the, right out of the water. Doug pops right up out of the water, and he's just skiing. That's Job. That's Job. He's the guy that just hung on. That's Job. He's the guy that said, hit it, Lord. Oh, man, this hurts. And he just hung on, and as awkward as it looked, his little ski in the water, he just hung in there. He hung in there, and he hung in there knowing that God is faithful. I got water in my face. God is faithful. I'm choking, God. God, you're faithful. I'm drowning, God. I feel like I'm drowning right here. God is faithful. And at just the right time, God just popped him out of those circumstances and showed himself to be compassionate and gracious. The example of Job is a great reminder for those of us who go through difficulty because it's easy to let go in the midst of it. And if we let go, we miss what God wants to do in our life. We miss the lesson that he's teaching. We miss the, the teaching that, that tells our heart, I am faithful. And although he might not show up until the 11th hour in your life, he will show up. But if you quit, before he shows up, you miss the lesson. It just goes right by. So James says, hang in there. Right now it may feel like you're getting waterboarded. Like you're getting drugged behind a boat and it's never going to end. Hang in there. Verse 12, he says, above all, my brothers, and my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. The, the point is, when difficult times come your way, you don't have to swear. Yeah, I'm going to hang in there. I swear. I promise. No. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's enough. You don't have to pinky swear. 
not to cut your finger and become blood brothers or swear on your, on your mother's grave, none of that stuff. Just let your word be the thing that propels you. Just hang on and let God provide. Don't waver. And so what James does in the next section is help us see a proper response to all this stuff because living or having this impractical faith is hard. So, so what do you do with all of this? It's almost like in Philippians 4 where Paul says, hey, believer, don't be anxious about anything. Anybody who says, don't be anxious about anything, isn't alive, right? Because that is so hard. Life is so hard. And if he stops there, we would like him even less than most of us already like him, you know, because he's a hard guy to read. But he doesn't stop there. He says, no, don't be anxious about anything. But instead, he says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And when you do... If you will pray, if you will present your request to God, look at what he says happens. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which will blow your mind and blow all of your friends' minds, he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I thought that is a powerful thing. The concept is when difficulty comes, and it's going to come, by the way. If it's not raining in your life, it will. Nobody gets out of life without rain. He says, don't be anxious, pray. Everything seems so impractical, pray. Look at verse 13, he says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. It's a form of prayer. The word suffering is literally is the idea of hardship. It's really attached back to James chapter 1, where he talks about trials and storms and circumstances in our lives. He says, if you're going through a hard time right now, pray. If you're in a great season where you feel blessed by God, pray. If there's difficulty or rain, pray. Whatever it is, the answer is pray. Are you in trouble? Pray. Is there sin in your life that you're wrestling with? Pray. And what I, what I don't like about church oftentimes is we say things on stages like, you should read your Bible. Amen. Right? And then never show you how to do that. And so our churches try to do a good job of going, if you really want to read your Bible, you can do it at this church. And you can do it in a group, and we will show you and help you and walk with you through it. Because the Bible can be hard. Amen? Yeah, because you read it, you're like, I got nothing. Okay? And so you read it with people because you need some help. But when it comes to prayer, sometimes when we say pray, some of you are like, I don't know what to do there. And you know what I want to say back to you? Stop it. Really? You don't know what to do? Prayer takes practice. It's not that hard. It's like talking to your spouse. Some of you are going, that feels terrible too. Yeah. <laughs> this idea, what's happened in the church today is we've relied on flare prayers for a living. Our prayer life is always in the car going somewhere, right before a meal, while we're smelling the delicious fried chicken, or right before we go to bed and we're like, dear Lord... That's our prayer life. We're walking into a meeting. Help me in this meeting. Close the deal. Amen. That's a flare prayer. Try that with your spouse. That's why you've got communication issues at your home. Because you talk to them about this much. Prayer is sort of like riding a bike. I wasn't going to share this example, but my wife said it was okay. After I shared it last service. So when my daughter... <laughs> True story. Um... 
When my daughter was about nine years old, I taught her how to ride a bike. I was late in life, you know, whatever. She's riding her bike at nine. She didn't ride it really well. Right after I taught her to ride it, we headed out of town on vacation. We left her with some friends. She rode down the hill, hit a mailbox. Big, nasty bruise. The, the, this couple we left them with were so scared, took her to the ER, all that kind of stuff. Since then, my daughter's 24, hasn't ridden a bike since. Some of you, that's your prayer life. Some of you in this room, that's your prayer life. Somebody taught you how to pray. And then someone made fun of you. You stuttered. You didn't do it real well. You, didn't, you, didn't, you felt awkward. You, you, you pedaled all wonky and, and it somehow it didn't go right. Or you thought you prayed wrong or you listened to f- foxes in your ears just telling you all sorts of crazy stuff and you haven't really prayed in years. You know how to get better at praying? Pray. That's it. That's all I got. Pray. Join some other people. Pray with some other people. And stop comparing your prayers to the person next to you. It's not a competition. It's not who can say the biggest words. Pray. That's his point. Pray. Church, pray. When it's, when it's raining, pray. When you're killing it, pray. When your kids are doing the best they could ever possibly do, pray with songs of praises. And when your kids are collapsing around, you don't know what to do, pray. He says, regardless of where you find yourself, the person through prayer will learn how to bloom where they're planted, whether it's sunshiny or raining. That's what prayer does. God might put you in a season of life where it's going great, or he might put you in a season of life where it's really, really tough right now. In that moment, God still loves you when it's raining and when it's shining. He is still for you. He still wants to encourage you. He is still with you. And he's doing something absolutely amazing and beautiful in your life. Church, pray. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And you see, anoint them with oil. You're like, is this a cult I'm a part of? Like, is that like voodoo or some sort of magic trick or weird thing? No, see that word sick, used 28 times in the Bible. 14 times it's, it deals with a physical ailment, okay? Like you're actually physically sick. But the other 14 times, it refers to someone who's weak, but not weak physically. Weak as in, I'm worn down. I'm fatigued. I'm tired. I am at the end of my rope. If you're physically ill, I don't know what's worse for you, the physical illness or the fact that you feel like you're at the end of your rope. I am exhausted. I am whipped. I don't, which one of those is worse? I don't know that I I have an answer for that. The storms of life have left us overwhelmed. We're at our wits end, exhausted. We're exhausted emotionally and relationally and physically. Anybody like that in here? Yeah, apparently not in this service either. First service didn't respond either. But the thought here is similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians where he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, meaning sickness. I am content with weakness, it's the same word, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak or sick, then I'm strong. So what James is saying here, are you Somebody who feels weighed down in your life, just overwhelmed. Whether it's something of your own doing or perhaps you're overwhelmed with your own sin. 
You, you are fatigued by your own sin. Are you sick physically? Perhaps. And it seems like there's no way out for you, and you're exhausted, and you're at the end of your rope. You know what it says to do? Call your elders. That's what it says. Call your elders. Let them pray over you. Let them anoint you with oil. A sickness of sin, a sickness of a normal, like a, a sickness in your life, like cancer or whatever, or the emotions. Call the elders of your church. And you're like, the idea of calling the elders of your church is not because they're spiritual magicians. I think we think that. No, the idea is that your elders are spiritually strong. And they are people who have been charged with caring for this body of believers. Not every body of believers. They are charged with caring for this body, for, for loving this body of believers, for feeding this body of believers. They are charged with shepherding and protecting and feeding this body of believers. And they are called to walk with you in your storm and to walk with you through your storm. And when you come, they're going to anoint you with oil. And you're like... That's weird. Why? It's not because the oil is magic. It's, it's not about the oil. What it does is it attaches to Old Testament teaching. It's symbolic. It sounds weird, but it's not a cult thing. The question really is, why do shepherds anoint sheep's head with oil? Three main reasons why a shepherd does that. First reason, bugs. Sheep are particularly susceptible to flies landing on their face, crawling up their nostrils, laying eggs in their nostrils. When those eggs hatch, those worms go into their head and bore into their brain. And what happens to the sheep is the sheep get so irritated, so annoyed, so frustrated, so they can't even think straight. They start banging their head against rocks and trees, and it can kill them. So the shepherd anoints the head, and the nose of the sheep so the flies slide out instead of flying in. Second reason they anoint the head of sheep with oil is, um, is butts, really. But it's the butting of head. Stop thinking poorly. All right? <laughs> you know, it, uh, butting of heads. Sheep will butt heads in order to, to gain sort of a position or assert authority. Male sheep especially. Shocker, right? And so what they would do is they like to butt heads, and so the shepherd takes the oil and would anoint the head or sort of grease the head with oil. So when the heads hit together, when they clash, their, hands would, their, their heads would glance off one another without doing much harm. Final reason is cuts. Sheep live outdoors. Thistles, barbed fences, sticks, rocks, predators, Outside is not gentle living. Even the greenest of pastures has potholes. And so shepherds check their sheep every night, oftentimes morning and night. And if they find a cut, they put oil on it because it aids in healing, adding to it so that this wound will eventually heal up. They anoint with oil for bugs, butts, and cuts. You want to know why we anoint you with oil? Because you've got bugs, butts, and cuts. That's why we anoint you with oil. We live in a dangerous world. You live in a difficult world. 
And when we get wounded, and we're all going to get wounded, everyone in here is going to have a story. If you don't have a story yet, you're going to have one. We've all been through hardships together, difficult times. And so your shepherds are here to anoint you with oil and to remind you of the promises of the one who truly heals. We're here to love you and to care for you and to point you towards a Savior who heals. We don't heal, but we know one who does. And, the, and as the storms rage in your life, and as you sit in your suffering, and you're, you've got flies all over your head, and you've got cuts all over your body, and you're just butt in relationing with your spouse and with your kids and everything else, and all of a sudden you're fearful and you're angry, and maybe sinful thoughts are beginning to creep in, your elders are here to care for you, to strengthen you, to pray with you, to walk with you, and to remind you of the promises and provisions of a loving Savior. It's not about voodoo magic. And verse 10 continues, it says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Now this is a passage that's taken out of context by the health and wealth movement all the time. Hey, just pray and you promise to be healed. If that's the case, if that were true, if every time somebody prays over you, you're healed, no one would die. Like, that's the dumbest interpretation I've ever heard in my life, because everybody dies. I don't know anybody who didn't die, and so it has to mean more than that. Oftentimes, the healing we need most isn't necessarily the healing we want the most. It's not the, the healing we need most isn't the one that I long for the most. So many people long for physical healing. And it's not wrong to long for physical healing, to pray for physical healing, but know that God might be using you mightily in your physical sickness, and the healing that he's going to bring to you is the strength to endure it. And you go, I hate that. I don't want that. And he goes, but I'm doing something beautiful in you. The sickness isn't the problem. You don't need a cure from the sickness. You need my strength to walk through that sickness. Maybe what you need is healing emotionally. Maybe what you need is healing relationally. And when caring shepherds pray over you and with you, there is a ministering to the soul that is so healing and so freeing and so encouraging and so hope-given. Even when it's sin, we lock our arms together to carry you out of the battle lines. That's what your elders do. To, to carry you to health, to carry you to get your wound bandaged, to carry you to get mended so that you can get back into the game for the glory of Christ. Because you know what happens? If you're fatigued, if you're worn out, if you're at the end of your rope, you're not in the game. You're not in the game. And, and not that you're, you're not, you haven't necessarily quit. You're just worn out and tired. Your elders are here to help you get back in that game. To remind you of the hope and the promises we have in Christ. In verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. John says something similar in 1 John. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't have to sit in this room and tell you of the areas in our life where we sin. I think you know. Most Christians go, yeah, I know. I've blown it. I know I have. You know it. Probably other people in your life know it. 
But the great thing about it is what you've also done is you've taken it to the Lord. And you've confessed that sin, and you have experienced the freedom that comes with him redeeming you and repurposing you and regenerating you and renewing you, and you have this restored fellowship with the Lord. That's what confession does. When you confess in prayer, it's amazing what happens. But you know what's interesting? Listen to what happens if you don't confess. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Here's what James seems to be getting at at the end of the book. He says, look, Christian, this authenticated faith thing that I've been punching you in the face with over and over again, yeah, it's hard. And there's going to be times you're going to do it really well, and there's going to be times that you're not. And whether it's sin or some other storm, whatever, left unchecked, it's going to wear you out, especially your sin. If you've got sin in your life and you never confess it, it's going to wear you out. And if you will go to your elders, your elders will not condemn you. Your elders want to carry you. But Satan is whispering in your ear, clean yourself up before you go. He says the same thing about going to Christ, right? You've got to clean yourself up before you go to Christ. It's the same lie over and over again. You don't have to clean yourself up because we want to carry you. We want to help you get connected with people to walk with you, to encourage the weary. So many times we think we have to clean up and we don't. Absolutely not. Sheep are stinky business. Sheep are messy business. And your elders love every minute of it. Is it hard? Absolutely. Are we in over our heads? Absolutely. And all the elders just said? Good. The ones in the room should have just yelled amen as loud as they can because we just sat in a meeting and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. This is big stuff. And see that phrase, the prayers of a righteous person? You know what I used to think? I used to think I had to go to a church and and find in my mind, I'm sorry, I would say, I got to find that little old lady who kills it at prayer. Okay? And I find, I'm going to find her who's awesome at prayer, and I'm going to go have them pray over my life. Because if I pray my little weak sauce prayers, God's not going to hear it. It's not going to have any power at all. I need to find the, the, the seasoned saint in my church because they're going to pray, and it's going to work out. That's not in context what this means at all. You know who this is? It might be you. He says if you have, if you have sin in your life, and then you've confessed that to the Lord, You've taken it to him, and you received his forgiveness, and you've received this renewing and this restored relationship, and it means then that your sin has been separated from you like the east is from the west. So far has he removed your transgressions from you. So he separated you all that way. And so what happens is because of that, you are by nature justified before God, which means to declare righteous. So what he's saying is, The people who continually have figured out confession, who have said, listen, I've blown it, and I've gone to him and sought his forgiveness, and and I've sat with him, and he's doing a work inside of me, and I fall short, and I go back, I keep short accounts with the Lord, that's the people who know how to pray. 
That's the righteous person. It says that the the righteous prayer has great power as it's working because if you've done that, you know the power of prayer. You've felt and experienced the power of prayer in your life. So another way to say that would be an energized prayer of a man who has confessed his sins and therefore has been forgiven is very, very strong. So pray, so confess it's interesting, Proverbs 28, it says, if anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, so those who do, do not pay attention to his word, those who don't let his word reign in their life, those who don't view God's word as authoritative in their life, even their prayers are detestable. So a little punch in the teeth, okay? <laughs> a little one here. Here's the straight truth. If you're hiding sin in your life, your prayers are detestable or disgusting to God. Now hear me out for a second. God doesn't want your prayer. God doesn't need your prayer. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your time. God doesn't need you to go down to the soup kitchen and serve at the soup kitchen. You know what he wants? He wants your heart. That's what he's always wanted. He wants your affection. He wants your attention. He wants you to look at your life and through the grid of the word... And when weeds are exposed, pull the weeds viciously. Uproot sin. Identify that sin. Some of you have gardens in your backyard. And some of those gardens are overgrown with weeds. And you've looked and said, well, I don't know. I'll get to it eventually. And some of you are perfectionistic and are like, there's a little weed right there. And you're digging it out as fast as you can. He's like, you got to get better at pulling weeds. Pull weeds in your life all the time. Read my word and pull weeds. Pray. Read my word. Pull weeds. Read my word. Pray. Pull weeds. That's what he's after here. What he wants us to do is pray about the issues in your life that no one else knows about. That's what he wants. Pray those prayers. God, no one else knows this. I can't tell anybody else this. Pray about that stuff. He wants us to confess those, and if we will, we will become the righteous whose prayers are now not an abomination, but they are powerful in their working. And the example he gives is in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns the sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. He says, you can't do anything that I've just taught you by yourself. It's like hiking by yourself, not smart. One of these days I want to hike Half Dome, not climb it, I want to hike it. And they say, depending on if you wander off the path, it could take you several hours or several days. I thought, wow, just from wandering off the path. Yeah, the idea here is it means to wander aimlessly, to gradually move away from the truth. You just sort of just keep veering off the path, and finally you find yourself off in the weeds somewhere. How did I get over here? I'm off in the bushes. And it says, if any among you strays and someone brings him back, I love that. It means people in this church are going to stray, okay? So let's just be clear. So stop looking down on the people in the church who stray, okay? Someone here is going to stray, but what his point is is someone ought to bring him back. Who's that? Whose job is that? 
James says if any of you are caught in a sin, not following scripture, help them out. Go get them. Don't just go, man, hey, did you hear about that person over there? Stinks to be them. Stop going to other people and talking about that person. Because some of you think we're going to kick you out of the church if, if you sin. I think we'd all be kicked out. There'd be nobody here. Like, if that's how this works. No, he says, don't do that. And don't do what most Christians do. You know, you know what most Christians do when they see a brother that's sinning or straying? Nothing. And we say things like, well, who am I to judge? You know, I can't judge them. I mean, it's not my place to judge. Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. Christian to Christian, yes, it is. You're not judging their salvation, but what you're supposed to do is go to them in gentleness and love with a heart of restoration and call them back to the faith. Because if, if that person claims faith in Jesus Christ, you are obligated to do the hard thing. It's not suggested. You're obligated. What would it look like if we in the church would hold each other accountable in truth and love and gentleness and go to people and go, you know that's not good. Several of you have come to me and said, Kevin, that's not right. And I've had to look at you and go, okay. Because James says what you'll do is you'll save their soul from death. It'll, it'll keep them from, from making all sorts of sin. Because there's so many ideas and directions in life that we think we ought to go. The things we think we ought to do. And if we continue to do them, what's going to happen is we're going to blow up our life. Unless somebody who loves me enough and cares for me enough will come in and say, Kevin, the trajectory of your life is going this way and not that way. Knock it off. There's a better way. Kevin, you're insane. What are you doing? You've lost your mind. Do you have bugs in your nose? All right, I'm going to anoint you with oil with a bucket. Just throw them a whole bucket of oil at me or whatever. Whatever you got to do, you need to not do that, Kevin. And then how I'm supposed to respond is, wow, thank you. Instead of going, who are you to judge me? I need to go, thank you. Thank you for, say, for loving me enough to say something to me. Because that's what love looks like. If you don't say anything to me, it means you don't care about me. Because then I'm like, I don't care. You can do whatever you want to. That's not love. That's bitterness. I need people who love me. That's helping people look more like Jesus every day in every way. And so from James chapter 1 all the way through James chapter 5, it seems like the impractical life, a life that has a faith that is authenticated by its deeds, it never happens alone. If you're doing life alone, you might not have an authenticated faith. Because when the wheels of life fall off, when the sickness comes, when the struggles and storms and difficulties of life come, will there be a church? Will there be a band of brothers and sisters to carry me, to love me and encourage me, to challenge me and push me towards a faith that's real and vibrant and true? Will we be a people, regardless of what the world thinks, Will we be a people who follow this very practical guide and will we allow it to lead us to an impractical faith? But make no mistake, you cannot live this book alone. 